Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 396, uh, the first of a half dozen episodes that were recorded uh, in Europe this summer. Uh, this episode is with uh, a Dubliner named Ming, and her uh, girlfriend Ashling sits in on it as well, and we talk about a host of uh, host of issues. Um, I want to thank the monthly donors, the GoFundMe donors, and BetterHelp for making this trip uh, possible. It would not have been possible without you guys, and i um, very, very grateful. Um, go check out BetterHelp. It's a great place to get online counseling. Uh, I use it. I love it. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And uh, the... A theme always kind of emerges in the in the surveys every week, and the theme this week seems to be um, people feeling trapped in their lives and feeling that whatever it is that they're feeling isn't valid and that they should be feeling uh, something else. And uh, some some really good surveys from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. If you've never taken the surveys for this podcast, uh, please go do it. Uh, there's about a dozen different surveys you can fill out on a variety of topics, and you can access them through our website, mentalpod.com. Uh, and um, I saw a lot of stuff when I, when I was in Ireland, and a couple of things that really, really stuck with me. Um, I was aware of some of the history of uh, oppression in Ireland, um, I was aware of the Great Potato Famine, which happened in the mid-1800s. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, um, the 
British colonized Ireland for hundreds of years. And Ireland didn't win its independence until the 1920s, roughly. Um, and so when the potato famine hit in the mid-1800s, um, the ruling class was largely British and Irish were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to vote. Um, tons of oppressive laws. And most of them lived right at the poverty line and their diet consisted of potatoes, like 14 potatoes a day. And in the, I think it was the 1860s, maybe 1850s, 1860s, um, a blight affected the potatoes and they all started turning moldy and the Irish started starving. And this was the era of uh, an economic concept called lazy fare, which was let the market decide, let the market work it out. And the ruling British aristocracy, many of whom owned the land that these people were starving on, but they they were owning it while they still lived in England. So they were very, very detached from what was happening. And <clears throat> the British government didn't really lift a finger to ease the suffering. And after about a year of this and enough people dying, they decided that they should try something um, because the economic minds of Britain had said, let's let the market decide how many Irish should survive this. Um, so they decided, well, let's give, let's give the... Irish some potatoes. We shouldn't let them starve. But not wanting a revolt, they put the men to work. So if you wanted to physically survive on your own land, you had to build what they now call famine walls. So to get your serving of potatoes you had to, it was essentially a chain gang. There's an area of Ireland called the Burren, which is a beautiful, beautiful kind of rugged area. And it's very hilly. And towards the top of these hills, it's almost like a moonscape. Nothing, nothing grows there. It's just rocky. And so the British made the men build walls out of stone that served no purpose. And they still stand today. And as you're driving, taking the tour through the burn, you see famine wall after famine wall. And these are different wall. These walls are different than the stone walls that you see dividing people's houses that do serve a purpose. These serve absolutely no purpose. And as you pass them, you can't help but feel the ghosts of the people who were so oppressed and humiliated in their own land by colonizers and it it there's no way that does not <clears throat> excuse me affect the psyche <clears throat> of modern day 
Ireland. How, how could it not? Um, so I'm going to read one survey, two surveys, and then we're going to get to the, the interview with Ming. And as I said, her girlfriend, Ashling, is going to chime in occasionally. Uh, this is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Bradimus, Bradicus Maximus, and she's in her 20s. How would you like to be remembered? Beautiful, funny, cool, irresistible. I'd like to be remembered as a very important person in people's lives because of how happy I made them. How does it feel writing that? Embarrassing. I think it makes me seem desperate. Uh, how would you use a time machine? I wouldn't. I had to convince myself, though. I have a child, you see. Uh, I'm supposed to feel fulfilled about being a mother, but I don't. I feel burdened. I'm supposed to feel strong about leaving my emotionally abusive ex, but I don't. I feel longing for him, even though he was miserable to be with. I'm supposed to feel confident about my ability to find a new partner that I'm going to have a great marriage with one day, but I don't. I feel afraid that's not going to happen. I'm supposed to feel like everything that happened with my son's father was worth it because it resulted in my son, but I don't. I constantly think about what my life would be like if I hadn't stayed with him and gotten pregnant. I hate myself for feeling this way and love my son dearly. I'm supposed to feel comforted by my friends, but I don't. I feel very alone around them. I'm supposed to feel safe about reaching out to my loved ones, but I don't. I feel like no one deserves to have to listen to me. I'm supposed to feel empowered about being single, but I don't. I feel unstable and want to get into the safety of a relationship. That is such a deep survey and so incredibly honest. And a couple of thoughts that I had reading is, first, I want to give you a fucking hug. And the other thing I want to say is these feelings that you're experiencing are so human and so common. It's what we do with those feelings that matter. And feeling guilty about your feelings is like feeling shame for having freckles. It, it's, they're just there. You, we don't will ourselves to feel one way or another. And at least I don't, I don't believe so. And I think before you get into another relationship, I, I think it would really be important for you to try to find a group of people that you can share these feelings with because a good support group, you could share all of this stuff. And not only would these people understand you, but they would be helped by knowing someone else feels the way that they do. So you are not alone by any stretch of the imagination. And this is, this is proof that you have an ability to self-reflect and go deep and get honest. And I think the next step for you would be finding safe people to express this in front of, be it a therapist or a support group or, or a trusted friend. And um, you may, might not find them right away, but you will find them eventually. And that becomes our, our family. But I have read so many surveys of people that, especially parents, that just want to get into a car and leave their life and start over. And so I think instead of looking at it in such a all or nothing way, ask yourself, what can I do to recharge my battery? What can I do to take a break, to do something just for me? And um, 
I think that'd be another great thing to, to think about, you know, a hobby or doing something nice for yourself one day, you know, go, go into the spa. Um, if you don't have the money for a spa, have your dog give you a massage. I'm not sure dogs can give massages, but I think the problem is going to be that one nail they have halfway up their leg. That would be problematic. Unless they were really good with it, because then you could just get into like that one area that's really, really hard to get into. I'm going to need some time to think about this. I'm going to run the numbers. I'm going to visit a couple of kennels, bring a couple of massage tables, uh, and I will get back to you. Uh, and then this is an awful some moment filled out by Copper. And uh, they write, a little backstory. I've been struggling with depression and anxiety starting when I was a preteen. I found out later they were symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Even after my middle school called my mom to tell her I was cutting, she didn't get me any help and would slap my arms if she found cuts on them. I found my own therapists when I became an adult. Fast forward to now, and my 11-year-old sister felt safe to tell me that she's become depressed to the point of being suicidal. She came to me because she knows I would understand. I can give her all of the love and care that I needed when I was young and fight to get her the help she needs now. This makes the years of struggling on my own sort of worth it. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with Ming and Ashling, and they are a young couple. You guys are how old? I'm 21, and Ashling is 20. And you are both listeners to the podcast, yes. and we don't have a microphone for uh, Ashling right now, but if I want her to jump in, I'll hand her uh, my microphone. And we're going to talk to Ming about her story, some broad, broad strokes of your uh, story. You were born in China. You came to Ireland when you were eight? When I was um, just under eight. Okay. So, yeah, just under eight. And some of the things that you uh, struggle with, uh, bipolar, borderline personality disorder. Uh, complex PTSD and codependence. Other than that, it's beautiful. It's, it's all <laughs> collecting them as I go along. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you keep them in a trunk? I actually no, but I do have a small list on my phone just to remind myself every so often. You keep it under notes. Yes. Here are my issues. Here are my all my issues. Yeah, that's yes. great. Where would be a good place to begin? Do you have any um, memories of your life in China that 
you think kind of embody uh, what your experience has been emotionally? Yeah, I think um, I. For, so yeah, I was. I grew up in like a quite well-to-do family. We're all very uh, like uh, financially comfortable. Uh, my mother, she was a lecturer in a university and an architect. And my father, he was a sculptor, but he was also like a businessman and he's very much business orientated. And kind of growing up, he wasn't really around a lot and they got a divorce. And as when I got to around the age of five, my mom came to Ireland to kind of try to build a home, I suppose, for me. So a lot of my childhood there was, in one sense, very free. Like I had a lot of freedom. I um, did a lot of things the way I wanted. I threw a lot of tantrums. I had a lot of anger problems as a kid. Just like I threw a brick into someone's window once. And like my granny, you know, the poor woman, she doesn't know how to show affection for her life, but she'll do whatever it takes for me to be healthy. Um, And that kind of like when I first came to Ireland, you know, not being aware of how some things were traumatic I was like I had a great childhood I made so many friends I was out all the time like playing and obviously school like any other like Asian school was really difficult um but like the teachers liked liked me and I was pretty bright um but then looking back now um there were like a lot of really difficult times because when my mom left and my dad wasn't there and my granny was looking after me but I felt like such a burden on everyone because I just like kind of passed around kind of in Mm. my head Uh, and my father was also it's a culture in China to kind of um, punish your kids hit them so with him like my biological father I kind of didn't justify it you know all the times he um, hit me, it wasn't, there was no excuse for it. Whereas my bio, uh, whereas my stepdad, uh, when, I first, when I came to Ireland, it was like, I did something wrong, so I deserved it. So in my head, I was like, that's okay. Um, and so like when I was in China, like um, some of the nice memories were like when my mom was around, we would... So there was no physical abuse when your mom was around? There were, oh, he was, I think he was quite physically abusive to my mother as well. But as a four or five-year-old, you pick everything up on the peripheral, mm-hmm. but then looking back, you realize what was happening, I think. Um, and when my, I, I don't have a single memory of the three of us together as a family. Um, it's either with my mom or with my dad. Was your mom usually the one who was traveling? He wasn't always away in China doing business. So even after... They, no, no, no. You're, uh, when you were in China. Yes. Yeah. My mom was in Ireland a lot. Like not like not in China she was there sometimes but she was also working so when was when she was there I didn't feel her presence very much I see. but, she, but she's Chinese she's Chinese yes okay. yeah um and I had a lot of I think I had 15 au pairs just like growing up wow uh just before the age of two even so it was like I why, why so many um I think like were you a handful I, I think I was I remember pushing one of them into like a pond and some of them stole from the family yeah you were a handful <laughs> I was a bit of a handful I think I needed my attention and I I finally did a lot of you know yeah. childish things to um to get that attention you didn't have amazing coping mechanisms at two 
That's really disappointing. <laughs> God damn it, man. Like, <laughs> I didn't have, haven't figured out. No, I didn't. I think, like, looking back, I had some small ones. Like, I remember ever since I was really young, like, um, I would, like, always pull out my hair while I'm sleeping. And I wake up and I have, like, even, I have it there. I did it the other day. But, like, and, and I just, she's pointing to the back of her hand. Yep. Yeah, sorry, putting it in the back of my hand. And, like, I would always rub my knuckles on my feet and my hands on the sheets. So sometimes I wake up and I just have no skin anywhere. I think that was a kind of way to let out like anxiety. And I was also very, I was, I was never kind of allowed to feel sad. So it's like, it's bad to feel weak emotions, like sadness and stuff. So and is that a part of uh, Chinese culture It was something- or was that just your home? I think it is also part of the culture. It's like, suck it up, you know? Yeah. People have it worse than you. And like, even my mom nowadays, she still minimizes my kind of feelings. And also, I remember uh, my dad being like, if anything happens, you just got to fight. You know, like, it's because the society is, like, everyone has to, like, make their kid really strong. There's no, like, you know, be nice. So... Growing up, it was very much like, um, be angry, be strong, and like... Was was there, is there a specific pressure um, being female in China because of the prevailing view that, from what I understand, that males are more valued? Yeah, I think, I remember growing up, and my mom always told me that my dad wanted a son. So from that, I was always trying to like I was such a tomboy I didn't like even now I would identify as non-binary and I even growing up I never felt like a girl because I always felt like I had to be quite dominant and kind of that's where I felt like I was like um you know fulfilling what he would want as a child like for a child so um but I remember being really really upset and it is a very um quite a sexist um country to some degree like I'm and the only country in the world that is <laughs> the only one yes, in the entire yes, world yes, yes. um but I remember growing up like I love playing football and um like just not being like allowed to play and coming home and crying to my family about it and they were like what did you expect like you shouldn't be doing that you know and, like it was really upsetting football as in what we call soccer yes in soccer, the States. Yeah, okay. soccer um it sounds as if the coping mechanism that your bio dad had was anger and the coping mechanism and i could be wrong that your mom had was to work yeah she i think she's of complete avoidance like even nowadays i'm like what are you doing she's just like just avoids you know like emotionally doesn't go there so i've never uh, learned how to like whenever i'm upset i go even nowadays i have to like re- reprogram my brain i go straight from like to anger because I don't want to get upset so sometimes I get so angry and I like throw things and I scream and I get so tired that I go straight to sleep so I don't have to go to that place where I'm like sad and crying because I'm like I think because like growing up never had that kind of comfort that would be there to help me if I get to that stage right uh, I that might, makes sense yeah so it, it makes sense I'm going to counselling this year uh, a lot on especially for trauma and a lot of things are just clicking into place and I'm like I see, yeah. I see. Have you had a good cry yet? Where you kind of uh, let something go that had been suppressed? <laughs> I do. I have. I have to actually be on my own. Like, even with Ashley, I'm like, okay, you have to leave. <laughs> like, we were in America, and I was just really upset at one stage, and I was like, can you just go? Because <laughs> it's like, I think I really have to be, like, on my own, and that's, like... To cry. The way i always done it, yeah. And when I was growing up, because in China, um, 
because I was kind of didn't have my family there, I I stayed a lot with my little cousin's family. So a lot of the time, and they lived really close by. So a lot of the time, I felt like I was always really sad because I see all the things she had, you know, all her uh, interactions with her parents. And I remember like seeing it and then kind of going home and just being really upset about it. But it was very important to me that no one else saw me being upset, Mm -hmm. that I was always like fine. Being sad, upset. Yeah, like even getting hit by my dad, I would never cry afterwards. It's just something like, like I remember one of the worst memories of um, growing up and it was one of my earliest flashbacks while I was 17 uh, in chemistry. <laughs> and it was- Perfect time to perfect have a timing, Perfect timing, perfect And I remember just like um, being around four or five and he rarely like, for a divorce settlement, he never gave us money. He never really like came and, um, took me um, for like a weekend or anything. But when he did, um, I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember this one time where I was um, four or five and we went to one of his friend's house and she gave me a glass of milk and I spilt it. And he just grabbed me by the back of my collar, dragged me out and I had like a palm friends on my body for like two, wow. two three weeks. And, um, and after that, I remember even just sitting in the car and just kind of like, just like, you know, after the crying and driving home and being like, okay, like, that's it, that's done. Like, kind of really just suppressing it all and pretending like it didn't happen. So, yeah, so that was, yeah, he was very, like, and he himself, like, both of my parents have gone through a lot when they're younger, and I'm not even justifying anything for them. It's just, like, how they were raised, so it makes sense, but it's not still not right you know i want to ask uh ashling uh, a question when you are with megan you ha- she has one of those moments where she needs you to leave so she can cry what's that what's that like for you um for me it's like it, it is upsetting because i obviously i care a lot about her so i i don't like her being upset but then i also do completely understand where there's times where you just need to be alone so it's it's understanding but it's kind of like at the same time I wish there was more I could do so if if the best if the best thing I can do is sit outside of the room and leave her alone then I'm happy to do that and I'll kind of try and take my mind off it for the time while it's happening um because all I want to do is be able to give her the best help I can so by me getting upset about it that's not going to help her so early on in our relationship when she would get upset and even there'd be things I would say or do that would trigger her um I would get really upset by it because I I go through some problems myself and I would really beat myself up about it say I'm not doing well enough I need to be better for her but now I've realized and I've kind of gone through and I figured out that to help her and to make her feel as best as possible I need to just kind of leave it as like this is hers and I will do as much as I can to help her and if going outside is how I help that's what I do <laughs> and and having that uh, that moment where you realize okay this moment isn't about me even even though it's painful it's uh it's not about me she's she's yeah. shaking her, she's, she's her head amazing. yes she's amazing I don't know what, what I do without her so yes. seriously yeah and, and you guys met in secondary school yes. which would be high school yeah, high school. Yeah, so Americans. I I was in um, my first secondary school, and then I got to the second last year, and I was hospitalized uh, from bipolar uh, for bipolar, and then I came back and um, one or two. 
like, one. Okay. And my teachers, like, I got on so well with my teachers. I was like that person that, you know, was really academic, academically focused. And, um, and they wanted me to go back. And I was like, that school has, like, messed me up and so many other people so much i can't i can't do that to myself so i went to a different school how, how how did the school mess you up it was a very very small school and uh the particular year that we started off with like in the very beginning so for six years the first year of the six years there were like about 40 students by the last year they had 20 and it was just a lot of very subtle I suppose you could call it bullying, just isolation. You know, I've always felt like such an outcast. And like, I'm a very, very outgoing, talkative person. In my last two, three years, I go into school and I wouldn't talk for a whole day, go home. Like, that's just what it ended up being like. And I think I just like, just cracked. Like, um, yeah. Did you feel that there was uh, prejudice against you for being Asian? Because this was in Ireland. Yes, right. this is in Ireland. Uh, that school, everyone was very, come from very privileged backgrounds. And they're all very, like, they wouldn't, I think, I think if it, if there was prejudice, it would be really, really subtle. But um, a lot of it was about, I didn't live in the same areas as they did. I didn't live in a terrible area, but I didn't live in the best areas. So it's, I always felt like I was never enough. So my clothes weren't like designer or like, and a huge part of me is like, that doesn't matter. But obviously, you know, when you're like 14, 15, it totally matters. You're like, why don't I fit in? And there's a huge, like, there's a few incidents, you know, in school where um, like everyone um, told me I was gay. And even before that, I never questioned my sexuality as much. And I never denied it. I didn't think it was anything bad, like an insult. So I just kind of let it be. And it was kind of an ongoing saga, you know, like people, uh, I remember one particular girl, she would, I would walk into class and she'd be like, oh, she's here and she'll walk out. And what? like, yeah. And I remember like girls and the girls were, were quite like homophobic in terms of like, I walk into the room and we didn't have changing rooms. So girls sometimes would change in the classroom, like when there's no teachers there. And like one girl just grabbed her stuff was like, ah, she's here. And like just running out, you know. What did it feel like in that moment? Oh, it's just like really shitty, you know. Do you, do you remember what it felt like in your body? Yeah, I just feel like I just have to like zone out. You just kind of do that thing where you're like, I can either react or I just pretend it just didn't happen for would my you, own sake. Would like, you feel like anything in your stomach or your yeah, face or you feel, describe that as, as best you can, if I you can remember? You, I just felt really sick. Like I felt like there was something wrong with me. Felt in your stomach? Yeah, in my stomach or like in my head, just woozy. You know, you feel kind of dizzy or kind of like, oh, no. And then you kind of have to just get on with it. And I remember, um, yeah, just that kind of feeling. And there were loads of incidents similar to that. Like, Was it an all-girls school? All-girls, yeah, okay. all-girls. And it was just a very, like, and the surprising thing is many girls in my year, like at least two or three other girls ended up in hospital for various uh, mental health um, disorders. And it was a lot of clicks, you know. The only part that I felt fit, like that I fitted in was um, the teachers, like they were amazing and I got along well with a lot of them. And I remember when it came to, um, leading up to my manic episode, my bipolar, they were so supportive. I remember in the middle of an exam, like 
I was one of those people I'm like I have to like get like an A like B's okay but C just well cut it and I was in the middle of like just a, like a summer Christmas exam and just in maths being like oh my god I didn't study and walking out and just fainting like bl- uh, blacking out and then going to the um, staff room and the teachers all just like piled around me like got me to lie down and they were very under standing of like my situation and even towards the end my principal was calling my dad being like can you please take her to the doctor like she's not well did you do you think that there was a feeling inside you that if i get a c i'm not physically safe it's it was a lot of internalized um like i must do what because because my parents uh looking back whenever I did academically well, it was amazing. They were so happy. Like even for my last birthday, my 21st birthday on the day, they walked in, there's no happy birthdays, but I got my results the day before. And they were like all about my results. And um, and I was kind of like, well, kind of like, you know, that sinking feeling where you're like, yeah. (laughs) It's about what I do and not who I am. Yeah, and I really internalized that completely. So for me, it's like, if I'm not, the top at every single single thing I do I'm clearly a bad person clearly I'm not doing enough in my life you know uh, and now I know obviously that's not true but it's still like very subconscious yeah and, and, the, and yeah. the wiring is in there and it it's I think one of the most rampant things in especially in uh, wealthy families is that conditional love of I will love you if you accomplish but if you don't uh, what is there to love? And yeah. man, you want to fuck a kid up because on um, on the one hand, the kid is being paid attention to and there is a caring about the child in that you want them to succeed in the future, but it's so fraught with landmines is, that... Yeah. You know, if the kid does get a C, you don't come up to them and say, you know, we'll we'll work together and we'll get a better grade or it's not the yeah. end of the world just as long as you try your your hardest. But yeah. I guess that doesn't that doesn't cut it. Or I imagine a lot of those parents are just passing on what what had been uh, done for them in terms of uh, rearing. But it's I see so many people who either share in the surveys or I correspond with through through emails who can't understand why they're so depressed or anxious or feel worthless and then that tidbit comes out that that was the only time that praise was given to them and i so wish that that was something that was talked about widely in our in our society and because it fucks you up it is it's conditional love, and it's much like the the I think the parent who beats the child um, and then takes him out for ice cream. It's it's such mixed messages Literally, yeah. that you yeah. you just don't. Who do I need to be to survive? Yeah, exactly. And I think like especially with the Asian mom uh, at the beginning, I think towards the end, like secondary school, my parents were very like, if I didn't do well not great but not the end of the world we'll get grinds and whatever um but at the beginning like i remember in sixth class um like this the last year of primary school getting like 99 in a math test and my mom's like what happened to that one percent <laughs> what did you do wow. and talking about conditional love like i just remember like one of it's only a recent thing that i've remembered recently uh no a thing i remember recently but um i was four or five and i remember my mom specifically telling me she was like oh you know um they say that there's unconditional love 
But I have to say, I don't believe in that. My love for you is always conditional. And there'll become one day where I may not love you anymore. And I remember like growing up and having this meter like in my head. I'm like, oh God, I just got hit for this. Like, like, has it raised up? Like, I was like, if it hit that day, was she, is she going to tell me? Or it's like should I grade. just guess? It's like a grade. Yeah, exactly. So in my head, it was just like this, like, you know, when you're in your car and you see the petrol going up and down, like, it was like that. Oh and I was God. like, is it there yet? Am is I going to fail yet? lovability? Yeah, exactly. Um, but <laughs> and I'm, how do you study for lovability? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the um, hospitalization for bipolar. H- had you known that there was, was something there? I had recently refused a, um, uh, I got a scholarship to go to Hong Kong to study. And I, I said, I'm not going to go because towards the end, I realized that I wasn't well. And to make up for it, I was doing like, uh, I was doing piano, violin, hockey, competitive swimming, basketball, headed baiting, European Youth Parliament and a play, like just trying to juggle it every single week with school. And from that, like, I knew something wasn't right. Were you in mania? I was, yeah, when I was manic, I was like, yes, I'm doing so much of my life, getting up halfway every morning, doing two hours of swimming before school. This is like the best way to live life. And then when I hit the lows at the beginning, like it wasn't as low, but as it got on, got lower and lower and I got up more and more manic. I start for every time I hit a low, I was so scared. Like I was so tired. I could not physically do anything. And I was like, I'm failing at my life. Like everything is falling apart. And I remember telling my mom, I was like, I just want to fly away. I just want to like go away really far and fly. And I was like, I feel like I'm sinking. Like I can't hold on to anything. And I'm just like going just lower and lower. And um, and then I remember looking it up because I, w- I wanted to study medicine at the time and being like, hey, dad, I think I have. And I was tracking my lows and highs and I was had a, like a calendar and I was like if I study it maybe I'll like go away <laughs> and um uh and be like dad I think I have cyclothymia you know it's part it's like a mild version of bipolar and he's like Ming like stop that's like you're joking you don't have that like get get real you know um so and even my this classmates, is your stepdad yes my stepdad but I say dad because he is really like a dad okay. so if I if I think about dad that's who I go to um and even girls in my class, like a lot of their dads are doctors being like, hey, I think you're bipolar. <laughs> Please go check, get it checked out. <laughs> and I'm like, no. And I got to a very manic stage where I was, um, I was shoplifting so much. It was like where I got my high. And I think it's like goes back to that core feeling that I never, like the world owes me. And by taking things, I especially from big, obviously big shops, like I'm like, I feel like I'm getting back like pieces of me, like uh, makes no sense. But like, and then, and then it got to me posting some, like I was convinced I could like um, sing and beatbox, and I wasn't bad, but it was like not what I would actually do onto Facebook. What were you posting? Like videos of me um, singing and beatboxing and talk and a lot of do it do you like, still have any of those i i i have them i a- don't look a- at them ashling is shaking her head and uh, grinning no it's like yes. i'm like so like i'm i've only been uh become okay to like talk about it like recently whereas before my friends were mentioned i'd be like no stop just walk away walk away like i can't do that like a lot of it also i block out like someone told me also i came out on facebook like wrote this huge paragraph or 
like none of this I remember at all because it got to one stage where I didn't sleep for three nights and I, and I knew myself if I didn't sleep I get higher and higher up uh, up there and I kind of wanted to test it out I was like all or nothing kind of mentality um and then my last day of school I wrote notes for everyone the year if they wanted to leave with doctors I just forged notes for them so I always left whenever I needed to because whenever I left it was oh I won't get enough like knowledge in my next class I might as well go home and study on my own so that's when I usually would like write myself a note home but when I was the manic gra- the grandiosity aspect of uh, <laughs> mania yeah I was like I was I turned up in school we had a proper school uniform I turned up in school in baggy pants a beanie I was skateboarding up and down the corridor I remember teachers coming out just being like they weren't even giving out to me they were just like wow and then just going back into the clo- at the staff room and then I was that was my last day in that school officially and um oh so it wasn't the last day of everybody's school it no, was it's your my, last day in my school. last day and it was I think the end of February yeah it was the end of February of that year um so yeah that and I yeah sorry to answer your question yeah I kind of as it was happening I realized that something wasn't right and I kind of looked to bipolar um and the crazy thing is I went to like this really fancy psychologist that got paid like 300 euro an hour and the first session I had with him I was like bawling my eyes out like anything he asked me I was just crying a week later my next session I could not stop talking like he was falling asleep like I was just talking non-stop and he was just like yeah she's okay just get her to keep coming back to me like clearly it was obvious there was something wrong what was the uh when you were crying were you in a low or were you in mania I was in a low but it was like between a low and um and like um mania but like towards the low like whenever I is that what they call a mixed state or is that different than a mixed state I have no idea I don't that's okay yeah it's okay um but yeah, I was quite low and he was asking me, like, I realized I had this cycle where I get really, really manic and then I get this huge amount of energy. And usually it's with my parents, like, they'll give out to me or say something. And I literally just, like, unleash it. Like, I, I remember once screaming at them and ran up to my room and I was, like, self-harming. But not even, because I do it very impulsively and not even realizing it. But then just, like, suddenly I had no energy. And I was just on the ground and, like, this blood everywhere. And my parents were like, okay you should go to sleep now <laughs> so and then oh uh, i sink God. into a low and they'll like build up again like it's deaf like like really dramatically so i, I want to ask uh ashling a, a a question the i imagine that she has shared this stuff with you before what do you remember uh thinking or feeling the first time she shared these things with you and were you a couple yet or were you uh just friends so honestly one of the first conversations I had with her was um when I when we first met when she came to the school I, w- I had been in um my whole life um after she went after she came out from hospital and one of the first proper conversations I had with her was her telling me about her manic episodes um and it made me feel really really comfortable with her cuz I struggle with anxiety myself and I had been I was just about to go to a new counsellor and I was getting really nervous and the fact that she was talking so openly about this made me feel really really comfortable and then kind of as we got closer as friends um I kind of learned more and more about it and then I'd say probably the biggest the the most I learned about um about her and about her uh, mental health problems was after we started going out and kind of as she was learning about them I was there trying to support her and 
I'm probably adding to them a little bit myself because it's kind of it can be difficult to do the right thing all the time. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's she she's really remarkable in how much she's gone through, and it's I'm always so happy to be able to help her through these things. Do you remember? Was there a moment when you realized that you uh, were in love? I think I don't believe in love at first sight, but I believe in. The first time I saw her, with the day, like the first day of school, I remember her standing up in front of school and introducing herself. And the second she did, I was like, ooh, I want to be her friend. So that's kind of where it started. And then I don't actually remember the moment I realized I loved her, but it was kind of from that moment, it was a build up. We didn't actually start going out until um, just over a year after that. But um, I had kind of my my love had been growing it sounds cheesy but um i already knew she was a remarkable person from just the first minute and i was i've never been proved wrong oh stop it (laughs) ming as you as you hear her share that what what do you think or feel um it's really like touching because a lot of the times like have been someone who is so hard on myself and not actually having a lot of like self-love and like having someone support me like that love me so unconditionally um it's just like I just feel so lucky you know and I always say like we always say that we're literally like the opposite we're like the yin and yang and to have met her is like one in a million and it's like I'm very very lucky and also to hear other people like praise me it's kind of like really uncomfortable and strange i was just going to say is that hard for you to take in still it is it's kind of hard like a lot of times i'm like yeah yeah okay thanks <laughs> but um when are you gonna hit me yeah yeah <laughs> yeah literally mm-hmm. i remember at the beginning i was like i was like if i weren't going out with you i'd probably be going out with some really like dickish guy who'd just be like really cold and like no but yeah no i'm very very lucky i'm better and yeah, it's just great. Like, I'm I'm really, really lucky in terms of, like, all the amazing friends I've surrounded myself with. And every so often, I'm proud of myself for staying intact after everything. And I'm like, okay, well done. Um, but even growing up, like, I have, like, always had this little voice in the back of my head being like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Gee, did you guys meet at, at your second secondary Se- yes. school okay yeah. so it wasn't as pressure filled and rejecting i as- was it was like a breath of fresh air like i remember going in uh the girls it was also all girls school but the girls in my first school was like ew you want to study like that's so stupid like we're all gonna you know it's that kind of mentality where it's like if you're academic there's something wrong with you or you're not cool or you know and then in the second school it was so much bigger and um and the girls were all like I remember turning around to someone the second day and be like oh my god people here actually like want to do well and she was like what like you know they just didn't understand where I was coming from and it was I just felt like at home really there um and how about emotionally is you know aside from them being academically oriented did you feel accepted outside of your academic focus yes yeah i i think when i was in my first school i was extremely driven because in my head i was like if i can't have the social part i have to do well in the academic part but when i went to the second school i was suddenly i didn't want to be i see some other girls that would be exactly who I would be like if I stayed in that school um, all the way up, who were just chasing all the awards and everything. And I was like, 
coming out of hospital like hospital completely changed my perspective on so many things and coming out like I just wanted to enjoy the last two years of my secondary school and obviously to be academic but not to push myself like uh, and obviously I had lows uh highs and lows as well but it was um I, I remember feeling like I belonged like somewhere for the first time and it was really nice uh so what changed when you were uh in hospital as as you guys call it and did did you then become medicated and and did you start taking medication to to keep the highs not as high the lows not as low and do you think that contributed to you saying you know I'll I'll give academics a good shot but it's not the end of the world yeah um for well, first the the thing that led me up to going to hospital was almost an emergency there's such a long waiting list and I was not on it and again I was lucky with an amazing doctor um but I had a manic episode where I was shoplifting and my mom made me go back and put everything back and I got so mad at her in the middle of the streets and I was screaming at her, horrible things, you know, very dramatic and people would be like, what? And then I suddenly began began to like think that I was being followed by helicopters and I hid under a bush and by then my, my parents did not know where I was, they called the police and I walked from town to like a smaller town outside of the city and it's probably like a good long walk like I left at one and kind of paced around with no water or food just completely zoned out of it and got there at like eight or nine uh in the between I had jumped into the Liffey I had that's a river here in that's uh, the river yeah. and I started from thinking people are following me uh to I must walk to th- South Africa to I think I am like uh, a prophecy like Joan of Arc or it was kind of like psychosis kind of like going in and I had I full-on believed it and I um and then I got to uh Lucan which is slightly outside of the where I was walking to and I remember seeing a church and by then it was like nine o'clock and I had like waded through parts of the river outside and I like gone into people's fields into the golf course uh, and I knocked I was like banging on the church door and being like let me in and uh, all these really kind of people that were living behind it came out and they physically carried me to the police station because I just collapsed and then my parents came so that was a Monday and from Monday to Friday I was like under house arrest and I was um I had cut off my hair turned everything around my parents had to take turns sleeping to make sure I don't do anything mad like one of the days I jumped out of the second story window the neighbors called the police on me like almost every day and eventually there's a uh, a place open in Galway so the other side of Ireland went there and and then that was the beginning of a three month kind of stay in hospital so had you at that point decided I I want to go into the hospital but there was just no room or had your parents decided they wanted you to or you were both on the same page that I need to be hospitalized Um, I was really not in like a state of mind to like in my head those four days just like I got very violent as well I remember because obviously there's a lot of build-up hate towards my parents uh, and at the time I did not know I just thought I was like the bad person and I was like breaking things and screaming at my parents and my mom especially uh, and then it got to Friday where my dad was like okay so your doctor said there's a, pl- a place open and I just wanted to get out of the house and I was like fine I go to the hospital and so it was very uh, they did ask for my permission and I gave it so like when you asked the first question sorry I went in and it was like all the strong drugs to make me sleep just calm me down and then after a week or two they started like introducing lithium 
and um and I also put on a lot of weight because I got uh, a lansipine um as one of the drugs to kind of keep me steady and that was really strange for me um and yeah so the whole process it went from I, I had when I had my manic states I made friends with everyone and I loved it where I had my lows I wanted to get out and I remember once trying to escape with like a spoon <laughs> like at this window there's like a crack I was like I can make it out of here and one boy tried to like um escape on a pogo stick you know and the walls <laughs> no. are like three meters no. high <laughs> and it was just so funny um I think as it went on you know seeing because I was one of the older kids I was 17 most kids there were 15 and realizing that like academics are like nothing you know people here are struggling with their life and just you know knowing people complaining about such little things and your perspective completely changes and you come out and you're like there's more to the world than just that little you know bubble that I kind of led myself into um, and, we, and then were, were you on lithium as those perspectives? Yeah, and I still am. So it's, yes. yeah, lithium and the whole way through. And then, um, and then recently I was just watching to, like, stop me from getting the lows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, hospital was, a, like, happy and sad, but it was exactly, I think, what I needed. Was there therapy in there? There was, yes. There Any was, breakthroughs in that? or There was. I met a wonderful... Um, lady and she was kind of acting as my therapist but she herself was a clinical speech language therapist and we would take these walks um through like the because it was the hospital itself was in merlin park and walk through merlin park and this huge kind of like kind of natural like i love nature so much and it was just like amazing to walk through the trees when you've been stuck inside like this little building and we would walk and and also Everyone else there was from the West Farland and she also grew up in Dublin. So we bonded a lot and being able to kind of firstly have someone that listens to you, you know, like intently where you're talking. And she was almost like she was around my mother's age and she has her kids herself. And like my mother is quite cold and she doesn't do like fun talk. It's like, you know, she's mother and her daughter and like with them. This lady, and um, she's so lovely. Her name is Aoife, and she would be like, "Haha!" Like, um, you know, joke about all the boys and like secondary school and stuff. And it was amazing, I think. And also, it would serve itself to see other people and being friends with all the children and um, all the people that also stayed there with me. And it was amazing because that was the first time I heard about clinical speech and language therapy, and that's what I'm studying now. And um, and I went back recently, a year or two ago, with Ashling to collect my files because I wanted to look at what they said about me, or I'll just kind of, kind of as something to keep. And I really wanted to see if, and somehow, like miraculously, she was busy, but we just bumped into each other, and it was just amazing seeing her and her knowing that I'm doing something because she introduced me to it, and um, we're both like in tears. And I was like, oh. Um, Did you do you remember saying anything to her? I remember saying like um, I can't even. I was so like you know in my head like just but like Ashley probably remember, but I was just like oh my god, guess what I'm doing? Like I need speech and language therapy. I was like thank you so much. You helped me so much. And her being like, I remember her saying she was like you know what I mean. There's some days like even recently I still be thinking about you. And I was like three or four years after I left, you know. What did that and feel like? Oh, it just felt really amazing because even though like so many people show me and tell me that I'm like important because of like core beliefs and stuff I'm always just like even like I remember when you asked me to do the podcast I was like 
he's, he doesn't mean it. He just wants me to do it because he's nice. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't like, whenever people do something nice for me, I'm like, uh, I kind of doubted. So it was, it was so amazing hearing it and kind of um, knowing that I kind of make, made a difference. You know? uh, Ashling, what, what do you remember about the moment when you saw them bump into each other? Yeah, so I remember, so we had been with a nurse um, reading the files and we had already told um, that the nurse that uh, Ming was doing clinical speech and language therapy. Um, so when we bumped into Aoife, um, Ming was just kind of in awe and didn't, wasn't really talking. They were just kind of hugging and grinning and, and smiling at each other. And um, and the nurse was the one who said, guess, guess, what, guess what she's doing, guess what she's doing, because she could see the like... The camaraderie between the two of them and Ming, and uh, she told her she's doing um, speech and language therapy and Eva was just so surprised she was like everyone here always ends up being a psychiatric nurse or something I've never had someone come back and say they've become a speech and language therapist so she was absolutely chuffed she was so so happy um, and it was it was just so lovely seeing because I'd, I'd obviously heard so much about her time in hospital and it was so nice to go there see kind of what she had experienced and to meet someone who had helped her so much who had maybe been one of the first people to give her a lot of comfort and to pay attention to her so it was so great seeing her and meeting someone who made such a difference in her life talk about borderline personality disorder you know you were sharing some of the moments um when when you were in your um either manic or low state and some of those uh, from what i understand are are also characteristics of borderline personality disorder and while to me it doesn't matter what the classification of the emotion is yeah. that you're experiencing what matters is the tool that you reach for to deal with it but uh, given that how how do you know which tool to reach for because it seems like um borderline personality disorder might have a different set of tools than um, mania uh, would or or am I wrong um yeah talking about tools like this year I was lucky enough to have done a dbt course and that was definitely extremely helpful to for, have that for, for those that don't know that yeah. it's a dialectical behavior therapy and it's a, a set of tools for people um especially for people who, who have uh, borderline personality disorder. Yeah, and um, I was very lucky to have done it with a kind of class of people. Um, and like knowing that it is like a lot of people who have uh, borderline personality, it's because of like past trauma and knowing that kind of that people are kind of shining a light on it. Cause sometimes it's really strange because like at the beginning I was so like, ashamed to be to a certain degree of like having things that affected me and to even be like um to even admit like to friends and stuff things that happened and I think a lot of the reasons why um I was hit while I was younger was because of undiagnosed borderline personality because I was like I would go from like happy to like suddenly really pissed off and but like really really in like unex uh, unexplained and my parents were just like you have an attitude problem or something, you know. And I remember, like, um, with my uh, stepdad, the, the like, events that lead up to being hit was I do something that shows, like, I have a bad personality, uh, sorry, I have a bad attitude, I'll, my tone will change, I'm disrespectful, and then it's like, go up to your room, 
and my room is quite small so it was, it was like quite traumatic to a certain degree because it was like I go up to my room and I just sit on my bed and wait to get hit and he'll like eventually come up uh, with a wooden spoon or something or a cloth hanger and um, yeah and it was just kind of like it was just strange thinking about it because it was like it would happen and suddenly it's like hey let's go out for a movie tomorrow night and my mom would just be sitting downstairs like reading the newspaper so like having that going happening from like the age of like nine till I was 15 it was like strange and not being to talk like I have like marks on my legs so is is that this can't be legal in Ireland is it I don't know. Ashling is, is shaking her head now. <laughs> I have yes. no idea. I was just like, and because of like the background growing up in China, and a lot of it was like in my head, I'm like, people have it so much worse. My little cousin gets it so much worse. So I'm fine. You know, kind of that mentality. And um, so with, um, with borderline personalities, like I recently this year having done therapy, I told, I confronted them on Christmas Day, I was so tired of keeping it in, and I was kind of wanted to like be like, boom, like mm. you guys are like horrible parents, and also to kind of not have to hold on to it anymore. I think everything worked out perfectly. Like I knew. Did they hear you? They heard me. I was just getting very negative vibes. Like you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. So I stopped the car, and we're like getting out to change. And I was like, could I just say something? And I turned around. And I was like. I think as I look, I just, because when I'm really manic, I scream at them while I'm not, like, in that certain small space in the middle, I cry. And I did end up crying, but I was like, look, I've been, like, emotionally and physically, like, you guys have been really abusive towards me, and I've had to deal with this. And after kind of the whole spiel, I've kind of, like, made up in my head while driving. My dad was like, you know, I'm really sorry that... um uh, we know we did a lot of things wrong and I hope we can find moments where we can make up for it but my mom is very like uh, she's very defensive she's like man you've no idea what I've been through like have you ever considered from my subject. point of separate point? subject and she just doesn't understand and like everything I talk about goes straight back to her so like so but my mom and I were trying to mend things and we're going on a holiday together fingers crossed <laughs> uh, to Copenhagen at the end of August so because yeah, I think very uh, few people are going to get it right away but it's important to lay that truth down hopefully in the most diplomatic way possible yeah and I think for a lot of people expressing it in terms of their feelings um, as opposed to saying uh, you know, assigning a grade to them as, you know, you are shit, etc. Because then it makes it easier for them to get defensive and, and reject it. But in that moment, speaking our truth, I think it so rarely comes out in a way that is diplomatic and measured. Yeah. And maybe some parents won't hear it if it's diplomatic and, and measured. Yeah. I don't know. I'm certainly yeah. not an expert on it. But, um, you know, as, a, as I was sharing earlier, I think the importance is is that you speak your truth. I, I saw a, uh, I think it was an Instagram post one time and it said, speak your truth, even if your voice shakes. And yeah. I so related oh, to that. And, I, and it's a quote from, um, a woman. I can't remember, uh, what her name was. I think she might've been in, in early, um, voting rights, uh, activist for, uh, women. I can't, I can't remember, but, yeah. um, I try not to remember things about feminism, uh, but <laughs> yeah. it, how do you 
deal with each other when you feel triggered and it's probably a borderline personality thing and now you have dialectical behavior therapy under your belt some of those tools um can you can you give me a moment where uh it helped you and ashling in a in a moment i think at the beginning for the last while like before you went back on your meds i remember i'll be scared to tell ashling something that she did that would upset me and i'd be like it's fine we just get over it just being like sensitive like it's fine and that's like my inner voice speaking and um, and that kind of feeds the, the bpd right oh, stuffing God. things <laughs> yeah right? completely and i remember uh like for example one event to highlight that i remember ashing's great aunt came for a lunch and i helped prepare and i wasn't even in the best mood i didn't really want to be there but she did she came in had lunch talked to everyone she didn't look at me at all she didn't talk to me i sat right opposite her she just the, ignored the, me the aunt the aunt and it was like it, it triggered so much of like my belief that I'm just like a like taking up so much space and like I'm not important and you know all that and I remember it took me two days to kind of tell Ashley but I couldn't even say it I had to be like yeah um and I think I made her I somehow led her into asking me how I enjoyed the meal and I was like oh, it was great like it would have been nice if she like looked at me but it's fine it was good and Ashley was like what and then Ashley got really upset about it because she was like I should have known um and I was just you know kind of comforting her but nowadays I think we kind of try to find ways like we never really fight it's like we never really fight but when we ever we have a disagreement where things get a little bit awkward um yeah sorry what happens (laughs) I'm like I'm like you talk well I know with that it was um it was definitely me it's because it's like when when you've got two people who are so close and each with their own problems, there's going to be sometimes where we clash. Um, and that was probably one of the I'm hope I'm pretty sure that was one of the last times where I reacted so yeah, badly that was. to Ming um, telling me something I definitely want her to tell me because I want I want to know when she's not feeling well and when things affect her. And it was just it was my own kind of self self blame and self worth problems that lead me to overreact so much and think this is my fault. Um but since then I've gotten I, I I've gotten better and I hope and agree that I've gotten better at like I was saying earlier that like it this thing this is about her. It's not about me. So I shouldn't be getting I shouldn't react so badly because this isn't about me. This is about something that yes I may have done something but it's triggered something that if she had if she had gone through different experiences maybe these things wouldn't trigger her so I think yeah we've we're kind of we're slowly learning it's always about learning about each other and we're slowly learning about each other and how best to deal with each other how best to help each other kind of the great thing about like Ashing now is like she's so patient like sometimes even if I get very frustrated and cross i never get cross at her like a lot i just get cross at things uh, like her family like we went on holidays recently and it was like living with someone else's family for two and a half weeks does get to you and and she kind of just doesn't get very you know she doesn't defend her like like the way you know my mother would it's your fault no she kind of listens to it and part of it really stresses me out. It's like she's like okay and like i remember at the beginning of our relationship i was like 
why won't you have a fight with me? Why don't you like tell me off? Like, why don't you scream at me? She's like, that's just how I, not how I do things. And I'm like, what is this? What is this brave new world? What is this? As you were sharing, uh, you know, listening to her and realizing that it's not about you, that, you know, that just reminds me of a thing that I think is really common with people who were raised in conditional love environments is that criticism doesn't feel like that other person sharing their feelings so that you can understand them. It sounds like somebody assigning a grade to your self-worth. And I would imagine that's probably what goes inside your mom's head when when she feels criticized is it probably feels like uh, like survival mode has to kick kick in as opposed to oh here's an opportunity for me to be closer to another person exactly yeah and the thing is like I remember in my kind of like confrontation with my parents I made it very specific I was like look I am so grateful you obviously have given me so much that I've come to this place today you know academically all these opportunities all these like music lessons I'm so grateful and for you being there supportively and I was like make sure they get that so they don't get all defensive immediately that's so important because I was to, like they're to, just gonna jump down my throat <laughs> yes that's so important to have that yes. f- that front part you know the to remind them that you do love them and that they are there are great aspects to them yeah. so important yeah I thought if, I, there if there are any <laughs> yeah and i think um yeah i think we we definitely like work so well i think if it was anyone else i like a lot of my friends i absolutely love them but we almost spend like every moment together you and ashlyn yeah it's like our parents are like what what is happening but like yeah our friends like I, like my friends i love them but they, i like there's barely any one of them i can spend this amount of time with um because it just works really well like it's like after everything that happened it's meant to be because if it none of it happened the way it did i wouldn't have met ashling because so yeah or, or develop the the muscles that you can now bring to other areas of your yeah. life yeah you know, your professional <laughs> life your yeah. other friends yeah that's the that's the silver lining of of having a mental or emotional struggle or trauma in our past but if we never ask for help and we never open up about it then it really is just something that is kind of um you know a shame or some other some other word yeah well thank you guys so much for uh being so open and honest and sharing your stuff yeah thank you very much for having me it's always so nice to meet uh, listeners when i when i go on the road i had a really fun time hanging out with uh my friend mia and them and uh listener Lori uh joined us when we went to a proper english pub and played jenga and talked about her feelings it was nice it was nice um before I read these surveys, I want to remind you there's uh, a whole host of ways that you can help the podcast, both both financially and non-financially, if you feel so inclined. And in, instead of listing all of them um, right now, uh, just go to the website and under the show notes for shows, you will see a list of ways you can, you can help. Uh, but one that I can tell you is subscribe. Hit your subscribe button, and that increases our download numbers. You will probably listen to more episodes that way anyway, but um, subscribe and leave leave a nice review on uh, iTunes if you can. All right. This is the um, 
I shouldn't feel this way survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself one sweet potato sack. How would you like to be remembered like my late grandmother to have shown love to everyone I know, to have accepted friends as my family, to have had a beautiful soul? How does it feel writing that? Scared that I will not live up to my own expectations. How would you use a time machine? I would go back to my mother's household to see where it all went wrong. That's a really common one. Um, I'm supposed to feel hopeful about the future, but I don't. I feel like every day my will to live becomes heavier to carry. How does it feel writing that out? It feels okay, but I wish I could tell my father that I have struggled with mental illness for so long. Um, you know, I, to that, I want to say, then tell someone else. Um, unfortunately for some of us, that well is dry and it would be great to be able to go to a parent to talk about our feelings but some parents just don't have the ability to have emotional conversations and instead of driving yourself crazy go into that dry well for for water find find another well and that, and that is the official end of that that analogy um this is filled out by uh, a listener named E. And they write, I'm proud about being at an elite college. And I, I should feel proud about being at an elite college, but I don't. I feel like an immense fuck-up and not at all worthy of this privilege. Revealing this to people makes me seem ungrateful, though, so I don't say anything. And I wanted to say, first of all, your feelings are your feelings, but feeling not worthy is nothing like feeling not grateful. If you were saying, I I am not happy that I am at the second best school in the country, I should be at the best school because this school is beneath me, that would be feeling ungrateful. It sounds to me like you're feeling insecure. And let me tell you from the thousands of surveys that I have read, it is really common for people in areas of high achievement, be it, you know, while they're studying or where they're at in their job to feel like a fraud and feel like everybody else has it figured out. So you're, you are not alone in that. And we feel what we feel, man. It's what we do with it. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, Ray. And Ray writes, I finally went back to therapy this year after wanting to go back for years. The moment I knew my therapist got me, and this was the best decision I ever made, was when she asked if my dad was manipulative, and I said, way manipulative, and whatever face I had on made her crack up. She tried not to laugh, which made me laugh even more. Not exactly the best circumstances, but in that moment, I knew that she got me, and I could trust her with what I was feeling. I had gone back to therapy after 20 years away and found the right person for me the first time out. I have a friend group that is basically a support group of sorts for all of us. We're all in therapy and live across the country from each other, but support one another through everything. I recently got the confidence to directly ask my mom what she knew about my dad sexually abusing me as a kid, and she told me she didn't know anything. I can remember telling her about it, so to say uh, about it, so to say I was really sad, angry, and disappointed is an understatement. My dad died four years ago, so she is the only one who can fill in the blanks for me. This was literally the worst case scenario of all the scenarios I had spent obsessing over. So I took my phone out and told my friends what happened. They all supported me. 
They told me I had every reason to be upset, which is something I struggle with, and eventually someone said something that made me laugh at a moment when I thought I would never be happy again. They got me to order some pizza, call my therapist, and watch a therapy comfort movie. Thor Ragnarok, in case you're curious. Ragnarok. Ragnarok? Ragnarok? Um, What if I spent the rest of the show trying to pronounce that? Uh, They are the only ones outside my mom and therapist now who know about my abuse. And in that moment, even though it was one of the saddest of my life, they made me feel connected and understood in a way that I'm not sure I felt before. I'll always cherish having that. You know, and that reminds me of one of the truths of recovery is that the bigger the bigger the leap of trust that we take in opening up to somebody, the better it feels when they, you know, metaphorically catch us. And sometimes we might be disappointed in the way it's received, but it is way better than never trying. This was filled out, I love this name, by a woman who calls herself Error 404, Depression Not Found. Fantastic. Um, And she only filled out part of the survey. And uh, I'm supposed to feel miserable for not having any friends, but I don't. It doesn't bother me. I had one friend as a child, made two more in high school by accident, but lost contact with all three after they left for university. In the 11 years since then, I've had no social interaction with anyone outside of work, my boyfriend, or immediate family. Friendlessness is most people's worst nightmare, and I feel like something is terribly wrong with me for being perfectly content with it. I don't feel depressed, and I've never had anxiety, but I know it's not normal to be this isolated. I don't know if I should try to fix something that doesn't even feel like a problem. Um, How does writing that make you feel? Uh, Worried about whether I should be worried or not. And to to this, I wanted to say, you know, a couple of things occur to me. One, you are totally fine and at peace with with that and the other is that there is a depression there but it's so become your normal that it it feels fine uh and so the thing i think to ask yourself is are you able to take enjoyment in activities because for me that's how i know when my depression is bothering me is when i don't get enjoyment in the things that I normally do. And I just want to avoid them and have my life shrink. Um, so, you know, f- f- for me, when I was at my most depressed, something was okay if it wasn't excruciating or draining. So my baseline level of what was okay was so fucking low. And it was only after I started to recover that I could access feelings like peace or enjoyment or um, joy even. So uh, I I wouldn't, those are the things that I would think about, but ultimately who gives a shit what other people need to make themselves feel good? It's what works for us. So uh, those are, Them's is my thoughts. And one of the things she shared on her survey is that growing up, her mother felt more like a sister, which to me, generally, that's 
that's, you know, a type of emotional incest, which generally makes us as adults afraid to let people in. Um, so as long as that's, you know, kind of been worked through and that fear, fear of people isn't there, um, I guess that's what I'm saying. Is it a preference or is it a, you know, an anxiety of being around other people? Um, because there's, as, as somebody said, there's a difference between isolating and spending time alone. This was filled out by a listener who calls herself Small Fry. And, oh, it's all gone to hell. It's all gone to hell. How would you like to be remembered? I don't like the, I don't like the idea of anyone recalling memories of me. Uh, writing that makes me feel nervous that there actually might be people who think of me at all. Uh, if I had a time machine, I'd go back to elementary school and tell my younger self that I don't deserve to be bullied and that trying to fit in doesn't matter at all. I'm supposed to feel relieved or free about moving away from my abusive family, but I don't. I feel ashamed for leaving my younger siblings. I'm supposed to feel excited about having a chance to start a new life as a young adult, but I don't. I feel unworthy of these opportunities and incapable of helping others or contributing to the world because I'm playing catch-up. All of these people that are my age can drive, be social, try to accomplish their goals, go to school, and hold down a job. I've been confused and afraid my whole childhood, not able to grow or develop in any way. Writing this makes me feel hopeless and trapped. It makes me feel weak because I know there are people out there who have to raise themselves due to absent parents. It makes me feel stupid that I don't know where to start. I think another way of looking at this is that you are starting. Some people never start. And yeah, it would be awesome if we could recover and grow instantly and not have it be a lifelong thing that in reality is usually two steps forward and one step back. But you don't know all of the feelings that are going on in somebody else. And so to compare your insides to somebody else's outsides um, is really self, self-defeating. So let go of the shame. It is not up to you to save your siblings. That's on your parents. They decided to bring them into the world. And just, you know, there is no catching up. There is no catch up. We just are where we are in our lives and trying to make peace with it while we continue to try to grow and love ourselves along the way. As cheesy as that shit sounds, man... It's, uh, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes and no. I no longer feel alone and being depressed and anxious, but I also feel like this is all pointless because some never heal and eventually take their own lives or just struggle with mental illness their whole lives. It especially makes me feel scared that those who study the human brain might have these issues as well. If our doctors struggle, how is a simpleton such as me supposed to find peace? To which I want to say... This is not an intellectual pursuit. This is an emotional pursuit. And our heart is as important as our brain in this. And yeah, we do need our brain for some of this, but this is about opening up our heart because that is connected to our brain and our mood and what chemicals get released and how our brain can potentially become rewired in a good way. And 
somebody who is sick can still help somebody else who is sick because they have a different perspective on our sickness because they are not emotionally invested in the life that the person who is obsessing about it is. That's what warps our reality, is our self-obsession about things. That's why support groups work so well, is because we can get feedback from trusted friends, um, or we can hear our story, you know, a, a story similar to ours coming out of someone else's mouth, and that will give us a perspective, um, because it's not our life. We get that distance is so necessary to begin to get a, a grasp on things. Any comments to make the podcast better? Um, the podcast is one of the few things that help comfort me. Um, it's great at making such heavy shit feel so light. Sending much love uh, to you, Paul. Thank you so much for all you do. You make me want to find people with a similar outlook on life and a similar sense of humor as yourself to surround myself with. I think life might be just a little more worthwhile if I did. I I would absolutely agree. Uh, no suggestions in regard to the podcast, but I do suggest Paul adopt me as his own. I know you often say you would never want kids, but you have done more to help me feel safe than my own father and stepfather ever have. And that is so sweet of you to say. But getting my shit together on microphone two hours a week is a whole lot different than having to sit through somebody's soccer game. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by trans man. And he writes, I've recently restarted uh, therapy after having some traumatic experiences with therapists that left me feeling I couldn't be helped and that I couldn't entrust anyone with my feelings and thoughts. A combination of Wellbutrin therapy and podcasts like yours and Risk have really let me open up after years of numbing out with risky sex and weed. I still have trouble even identifying my emotions, which has been the hardest part about being mindful, but I can feel myself getting better. I've been trying to confront my crippling social anxiety, and I've been taking small steps to challenge my thinking. I decided to go to a Beyonce concert alone, something I didn't even know a human being was capable of doing. And on my peaceful drive to Boston, I looked into the blue summer sky and realized for the first time in my life how grateful I am for being alive. I cried the rest of the way there, feeling so thankful that I am able to be able to be independent, face my fears, and see my absolute fave. I am so lucky that I didn't miss out on this life-changing experience because I was afraid of being alone in a crowd, afraid of being judged for being alone because everyone would obviously think what a pathetic loser I was. Truthfully, I did consider not going for these reasons, and I am so proud of myself that I did. I've never been so proud of myself in my life, and that is a little embarrassing, but yeah, I'm not depressed, and that is owed in small part to your podcast, it has really helped me fill in the gaps that I've been missing and becoming more emotionally intelligent, and it has been invaluable. Um, I just sincerely want to thank you again. Um, <laughs> you are one of the most emotionally intelligent uh, people I've ever uh, heard, and you sound like such a supportive person. The people in your life are lucky to have you. Please read that and don't skip it because you deserve love and appreciation. 
Um, any comics, comments to make the podcast better? I would like to hear more people of color on the show and specifically black people. I'm very interested in the relationship between being black and heightened anxiety and depression combined with the community's stigmatization and shaming of mental illness. It would be great to hear more about how race impacts negative thinking and mental disorders. Well, you know, um, to, first of all, thank you for all your kind words and what a beautiful moment, uh, you, you shared, um, and that, to me, is a perfect example of spending time alone versus isolating. Um, uh, the episodes that I'm uh, going to name are on the back catalog, which is uh, now behind a paywall at Stitcher Premium. But two great episodes that, that address what you would like to hear are the one with uh, psychiatrist Dr. Mel- Melanie Watkins, who is uh, black, and it she addresses uh, the stigma in the community and the you know the pressures of oppression and racism, um, and then uh, Royce White, who is an ex NBA player, uh, a really really great episode with him. And I know that there are there are other episodes there as well, but those are those are two that that spring to mind. Um, but you would have to go to stitcherpremium.com slash mental and it's uh, $4.99 a month, but then you get access to the entire back catalog of this podcast with all the ads taken out, and it goes all the way back to episode number one in March of 2011. Uh, and you get uh, access to uh, the back catalogs of a ton of other great podcasts and original content, stand-up albums, stuff like that. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by my emotions are clogged like a blocked toilet. And uh, she writes, after sleeping many hours, I finally managed to get out of bed. I had no desire to do anything, but my dog needed a walk. Anyway, about 15 minutes into the walk, it started raining really heavily. And by that time, I was already too far from home, so getting soaked was inevitable. So we both ran as fast as we could. I might have looked like a twat, but it didn't matter. And in that 10 or so minutes it took us to run back home, I felt good. For a short time, I wasn't in my head anymore, and the focus was to just get home out of the rain, even though we both got drenched and my dog wasn't as happy about it. It was the most I've felt in weeks. And I'm realizing this sounds very sad and pathetic, and usually something like this would piss me off, but today I could not be more grateful. That, to me, is life right there, is appreciating those small moments. It's one of the reasons why I love the Happy Moments Survey and and also the Awfulsome Moments Survey because it's, to me, success in life is being able to find the sublimely beautiful in the awful or the mundane. That's being able to to make peace with what is instead of shaming ourselves for what isn't or feeling envious of those who we think have what we want. This was filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself Changing. She's in her 30s. Uh, how would you like to be remembered? I want others to look at their life and realize that if I can overcome so can they. Writing it out, I get mixed feelings because I'm always convinced I'll prove that change is impossible tomorrow. If I had a time machine, I'd destroy it. I'd like to say I wouldn't change a thing, but that's a lie. There are many things I'd change, but since I have no idea 
where I'd be if I did, I'd just stick with today's reality. Overall, it's been a good day. Uh, I'm supposed to feel embarrassed about my post. I think she's talking about her job, but I don't. I feel proud because it opened up doors I never knew existed and led me down a path I never would have noticed. Uh, writing it, actually, this has been a part of my truth for, for a long time and something I don't shy away from admitting. Sometimes it just makes me sick to see how positive I've become. That is a t-shirt. Sometimes it makes me sick to see how positive I've become. And then on the back of the shirt, it should just be somebody pissing on a flower and the flower growing despite that. Um, do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I wish more people could see how some of their worst moments have opened the door to some of their best moments. But unfortunately, in this area, I am a rare bird. But you know what? The good news is it's becoming less rare. More and more people that get into recovery and reach out for help, we are beginning to see how much it can expand our lives emotionally and bring more meaning and purpose into it. And man, when I have meaning and purpose in my life, I feel peace. I feel peace. Even if shit's going down around me, I'm still able to access some peace. Um, thank you for that. That's a great survey. Um, I just want to read an excerpt from this one. This was filled out by Jan. And she would like to be remembered as funny and beautiful. It makes her feel sad because she's both. But I'm, de- but she's depressed and can't imagine how anyone would know. Um, I'm supposed to feel great about making as much money as I do, but who gives a shit? I feel alone all the time. I was taking a nap and I was thinking about suicide, uh, ideation in my sleep. I'm so tired that even taking a nap is fucking depressing. Wait, I'm so depressed that taking a nap is tiring. Oh my God. I got up and hung out with my kid instead. She's fun. I hope she never knows how much I hate my life. I love her so much, but I can't stand myself. Writing this out, I feel sad. I'm crying now. I hope I'm enough for this little kid. I don't know. Am I abnormal? Yes. I think I need some therapy or some medication. I'm having a hard time doing it myself. Uh, I know other people feel the same way. I think we're all scared and no one will care or everyone will care too much. I think getting some therapy and possibly some medication would be a great place to start. And you'd be doing it not only for yourself, but for your kid. Because you'd be modeling getting into the solution and not hiding problems. And you'd be more present for that kid. You'd be able to bring more joy probably into their life. Um, this is filled out by Lucy, and she'd like to be remembered as a happy, genuine human being. Write it, writing it out, it feels like that's not true, and I'm perceived in a different way. I'd use a time machine to go back to when my parents were married so I could see how they actually interacted with each other versus the stories I hear. I was two when they divorced. I'm supposed to feel guilty about hating my mother, but I don't. I feel fine. Uh, It doesn't make me feel guilty like I thought it would, uh, writing it out. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes. Most people feel guilty for hating their parents, but I don't, and I think that's wrong, but it also feels normal at the same time. There is no normal when it comes to, to, to feelings. There is no right, I should say. It's common, um, but... It's great that you're not judging your feelings, you know. The thing to look at would be 
if you were pouring hateful actions out at your mom, that would be something that would you would possibly want to look at. But, um, yeah. And who knows, maybe you, at one point you will feel indifferent about her and you won't even feel hate. But if you don't, that's cool too. And it would make me feel better if I could find the answer as to why I don't feel guilty. Feeling guilty for having an emotion is not a better thing. So don't wish that you felt guilty on top of feeling hatred. That's like, I got a shit sandwich, but I really wish somebody would throw up on it. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself stressed, depressed, and not well-dressed. She's straight. Uh, she's 17, actually. Uh, she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, I would say much more than slightly dysfunctional. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff counts, but I don't know. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I felt targeted sexually by my grandfather the year I turned 11. I was just beginning puberty. He would make remarks about how I was growing and all that. Then say he was joking if I seemed put off. Uh, once, while my mom and dad were away, my brother and I stayed with our grandparents for about a week. Something happened uh, that week that still makes me cringe. One night he told me to come closer to him because he had to tell me something. I leaned down for him to whisper to me and he licked the entire side of my face. My grandmother saw and saved me telling him how inappropriate his actions were. I ran upstairs and scrubbed my face until it hurt. Nothing of that sort ever happened again. I kind of worry I might have just been too sensitive or something. I don't know if he was joking or if doing that got him off. I'll never confront him about it, that's for sure. What he did is so fucking gross. And whatever he was looking to get out of it, it doesn't matter. It's how you felt about it. And don't minimize it. That is super fucked up. Um, she's never been physically or emotionally abused. My whole family has been an emotionally has been emotionally abused by my older sister. She's hurt all of us in numerous ways, especially my mom and brother. She's an alcoholic, and she has had an eating disorder for more than fifteen years. She doesn't want to get better. She continually denies having problems with alcohol. She's also been a prostitute and escort for years. She becomes very abusive when she drinks. She still lives at home. She's very self-destructive, and all of us worry she will die. Any positive experiences with people who've abused you? I was always very distant from my grandparents, and I can't remember very many memories with them. I was always very shy around my grandfather and never really talked to him. Uh, darkest thoughts, uh, suicidal thoughts. I think about fucking every attractive older man I see. Uh, wishing I had a terminal illness instead of depression and anxiety. This would make people see me. There are there are healthy ways of getting people to see you. And it is so common to picture that, to picture being in the hospital as the only conceivable way of people to see our pain. But a support group is a great, great way to feel seen 
and heard and validated and to be that for other people. Um, darkest thoughts. Uh, I say mean and awful things to people I hate and make them cry. Um, uh, I guess that's what she imagines. I want to scream at my sister and tell her she's delusional and that she's destroyed my mother and father. Darkest secrets. Shoplifting. I often fantasize about having affairs with older men. I fall for older men who have no feelings for me whatsoever. And for months while in my last year of high school, I starved and binged and purged just like my sister. I don't anymore, and I'm disgusted with myself as to why I did that. Um, what, if anything, would you like to tell somebody you haven't been able to? I tell my grade 12 English teacher that she's wrong in assuming my generation is just lazy and passive rather than mentally ill. I'd scream in her face and tell her the ways I wish I could kill myself and tell her that my generation has to deal with a lot more pressure than she thinks. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be able to truly love myself and be the best person I could be. I wish to be a good friend and help people even in just small ways. Well, you are perfectly positioned. To start that, there is nothing keeping you back from doing that. And all your negative self-talk, it's just, it's, it's what our brains do, but it is not the truth. You sound like a lovely, self-reflective person who's come from really difficult circumstances and who wouldn't feel alone and have negative thoughts. But the world is open to you now because you are, it sounds like you're out of high school. And so it's time to, well, and this is awesome. She's in therapy. I share these things with my therapist who is amazing. I never once felt judged by her upon telling her these things. I'm incredibly lucky. So you're on your way. And writing these things down, she, she says she feels relieved. Um, awesome. Awesome. Uh, And then finally, I want to read an awful moment, and then I made a little gratitude list. I was doing that as part of my morning meditation the other day, and I thought, you know what, let me read it to the kind people. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself love slash hate everything. I was having a bad day, so after work, my boyfriend offered to take me to my favorite restaurant. When we got there, every table was full, and there were many people waiting. I was instantly overwhelmed panicked and could feel my body heating up and started sweating. I couldn't even hear the hostess talking to me and my boyfriend responded and looked at me like he saw a ghost. We were finally seated, thankfully at a window seat on the side of the restaurant. For some reason, I started bawling. I was trying to hide it and my boyfriend looked terrified. Finally, something clicked for him that I was having a panic attack and that I couldn't help what was going on. He just grabbed my hand and didn't say anything else. After we left, we had the best conversation about my mental health. He previously kind of thought I was, quote, faking, or that, quote, mental illnesses are something people make up or play out to their advantage. And I think he finally started to understand what goes on inside my head. Since this night, he's been very helpful and open with me about what goes on with me and my mental health. He cares, and even if he doesn't understand, he really tries to and knows what helps me get out of these terrible moments. That is so sweet. That is so sweet. Thank you for sharing that. So here are some things that I am grateful for. I am grateful that I have food. I am grateful that I have shelter. 
that I have friends, that I am sober, that I'm relatively healthy, that I can afford health insurance, that I can still play hockey, that I have made emotional progress, that I have meaning and purpose in my life, that I've developed coping tools, that I have people who love me and want to help me, that I don't live in a war zone, that I have the right to vote, that I'm pretty good at working on my issues, that I have a sense of humor, that I'm getting better at setting boundaries, that I live in a quiet neighborhood, that people care enough about the show that I can keep it going, and that I'm able to help people, not despite what I've been through, but because of what I've been through. I hope you heard something that helped you or entertained you or you found compelling. And uh, just remember, whatever you are feeling, someone else is feeling it. And you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.